Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into the latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Rich Lenkov of Downey and Lenkov and Tina Martina, McDermott, Will, and Emery. We're going to start off with the latest Trump investigation. And with that, we bring in Temadayo Agango-Williams, partner at Salendi Gay-Ellsberg and former senior investigative counsel with the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Temadayo, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. On Monday, lawyers for Donald Trump met with special counsel Jack Smith and other DOJ officials. Smith is, of course, investigating Trump in connection with his retention of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago after leaving the White House. Do you think that this means that Smith is moving closer to indicting the ex-president? I think exactly just that. It is common in high-profile public investigations to have the target's lawyers meet with prosecutors. But those meetings typically happen after an investigation has developed considerably, considerably here. So the fact that they're meeting with Jack Smith himself led me to believe that uh, the special counsel believes he has a strong case and that he can move forward with charges. So, Tamadayo, there has also been a revelation that a Mar-a-Lago computer server room was flooded while the FBI's criminal investigation closed in. Don't you think this is pretty damning evidence? And do you think it could lead to an obstruction charge? I think that remains to be seen. I think those facts certainly will be developed by the Department of Justice. But as many former prosecutors would tell you, that prosecutors tend not to believe in coincidences. So I think here, the fact that the employee is also the same individual who helped move some of the classified documents, according to public reports, I think will make prosecutors take a really close look at this uh, with the the idea that it could be an obstruction charge. And just pick up on that point. I mean, maybe you could speak to how important it is and maybe the biggest obstacle in uh, bringing an indictment and proving it is the mens rea aspect. Right. I mean, Trump has uh, said throughout the course of this uh, and other investigations that uh, he did nothing wrong, that he had every right to do what he does. But the more evidence that a prosecutor can show in showing his mental state and his knowing uh, that he was doing something wrong in not only possessing this uh, classified uh, evidence, but also possibly obstructing the investigation. That's a crucial piece of the challenge that Jack Smith and his team have, correct? That is 100% correct. That's the difficulty that prosecutors constantly face is how do you get into the mind of a defendant and prove what's in that mind to a jury? But I think here the revelations indicate that uh, Special Counsel Smith is going to have some help there, namely with regard to the recording we've heard about uh, from directly from President Trump's mouth, which is always going to be a critical piece of evidence anytime you can hear from the defendant you're charging. That recording, as you mentioned, is uh, allegedly or reportedly of a December 2021 meeting in which Trump acknowledged that he held on to a classified Pentagon document but a potential attack on Iran uh, that, of course, undercuts his argument, if true, that he declassified everything. How important, if true, would that be to the prosecution? 
I think it would be a blockbuster piece of evidence. You know, there's a reason that wiretaps, for example, are used consistently because that gets the prosecutors into the mind of a of a target and gets those words out back to the jury. I think here, if that recording shows what you just uh, indicated, it's going to be damning for President Trump. And also importantly, with regard to the Espionage Act, that relates to uh, evidence concerning national security. The fact that we're talking about uh, documents pertaining to an attack on Iran, it's going to put President Trump right within the, uh, the scope of the Espionage Act. The Smith team also obtained dozens of pages of dictated notes from Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran. What information is potentially in these notes and how important do you think this information is in proving Trump's intent? I think, again, this goes right to what President Trump was thinking. Typically, when speaking with your lawyer, that's where you often offer your most kind of open and free thoughts. So the fact that uh, President Trump's counsel was dictating those same thoughts, which presumably would have included his impressions of what President Trump was saying to him, I think it could be damning. Because again, it gets the prosecutors into President Trump's minds and gets them, you know, behind the veil a little. Mandayo, last question here on legal face-off for you. Uh, it's obviously there's obviously some degree of prosecutorial discretion in deciding whether to bring charges against uh, anyone. Importantly, against an ex-president for a charge like this, Trump and his legal team have come out and said that he did nothing wrong. He had the authority to declassify documents. Um, Bring us in the room where it happens, so to speak. You've been in those rooms. You've been, uh, you know, uh, a part of a team making these kind of decisions. When a prominent defendant or a possible defendant comes out in the media repeatedly, like this potential defendant has, and almost challenges the or outright challenges the authority of the prosecutor, calling it a witch hunt, and also questions the evidence, does that make people like you in your former position more inclined? to bring charges? Or are you thinking, well, this is a big deal. And unless I have it really right, it's going to you know, be very embarrassing. So, or is it maybe a combination of those two? Bring us in, inside sort of those decision-making processes. Well, I would say first, the department has some of the most professional lawyers out there. And I have full confidence that they're going to make their decisions based purely on the evidence and looking directly at what President Trump has purportedly done and how and when they could support that in front of a jury. Now, with that said, prosecutors are human, just like everyone else, and they will consider, you know, whether consciously or not, all the factors here. And I think any lawyer would tell you that if prosecutors were deciding your fate, that is not the time to poke them in the eye. But I think, nonetheless, I expect that they'll do so professionally and, and make a decision based on the evidence. Again, that's Temadeo Aganga Williams, partner at Selendi Gay Ellsberg and former senior investigative counsel for the Select Committee that investigated the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Temadeo, thank you very much for the insight. Thank you for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. 
In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, the Texas Senate has set a date for Ken Paxton's impeachment trial. With that, we bring in Professor Mark Jones, political science fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute. Professor, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So, Professor, uh, as Joe mentioned, the Texas House has voted overwhelmingly to impeach Attorney General Ken Paxton, suspending him from office over allegations of misconduct that include bribery and abuse of office. The last impeachment trial of a member of the Texas executive branch took place 106 years ago. Now, these allegations or similar allegations of illegal unethical activity have been swirling around Paxton for many years. So why did this happen now? Well, that's a good question. Uh, So clearly, Ken Paxton has had legal difficulties ever since his first campaign for attorney general when he was running in the 2014 Republican primary. That's when the first securities fraud accusations were coming out. Um, Over the course of time, uh, he's been able to avoid things. But this most recent uh, set of allegations is more serious for a couple of reasons. First, uh, the allegations came from more than a half dozen conservative attorneys and other officials within the Texas Attorney General's office and could not be essentially easily wiped away or discounted as being politically motivated. These are all strong conservatives. The second is it's there are a lot of there's a lot of evidence here of misdoings by the attorney general from uh, intervening in very bizarre and unethical and inappropriate ways to help Nate Paul, an investor, to receiving benefits from that investor, ranging from remodeling his kitchen to a job for his uh, the woman with whom he was having an, an uh, extramarital affair at the time. Uh, why now, I think, comes down to a couple of things. First, the attorney general put this on the House's agenda when he formally requested that they pay a $3.3 million settlement with these whistleblowers. Uh, so he effectively opened the door for the House to begin an investigation. Now, during this whole session, the House has been on a defensive. Now, our House and Senate are run by Republicans, so that's true, but they're run by different Republicans. The, the Senate is a more conservative branch that is run by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who over the past 10 years has created an institution in his own image, very conservative. The House is run by the more moderate Dade Phelan, who arrived to power via an alliance of moderate Republicans and centrist Republicans, along with Democrats. So it's always a little more moderate. Phelan and the House were getting beat up on by the Senate and to lesser extent the governor all session for blocking legislation such as school choice, which conservatives wanted. And this is a way for, I think, Phelan to effectively reassert the power of the House and fight back against uh, the more conservative wing of the Texas Republican Party by going on the offensive against Ken Paxton, who is one of its more conservative members, but also one of the weakest members of its herd. So, Professor, Paxton has been one of the most consistent and reliable legal thorns in the sides of Democratic presidents Obama and Biden on key issues, including immigration, abortion, federal spending and voter ID laws. 
Among Texas House Republicans, 60 voted to impeach while only 23 voted against. Doesn't this violate Ronald Reagan's famous 11th commandment of thou shalt not speak ill of any Republican? Well, so I think you know, with, with Paxton, the votes against him were lopsided in favor by Republicans in terms of favoring impeachment. That was in part due to the fact that the speaker made an active effort to pressure members to vote to impeach since the speaker had gone there out on a limb for this. He wanted to make sure that as many people voted as possible. The other, the second is it's Ken Paxton. Uh, so, you know, it's, he's someone who throughout his career has been involved in one unethical or at least legal or uh, I guess inappropriate scandal to another. This goes back to uh, land deals in his home county of Collin County, which is just north of Dallas, where he started off as a lawyer with a shingle and after his time in uh, being in office was involved in a two dozen limited partnerships uh, related to real estate where he was making a fortune. Uh, in the Collin County Courthouse, he stole a Mont Blanc pen that was left behind at a metal detector. Uh, he was accused of uh, an, under indictment for uh, securities fraud from the 2014, but he's been able to avoid that by getting the case kicked back to Collin County, where he is, where he where his political power base is, and then convincing the commissioner's court, those are the the county executive and the their members who run the government there, to effectively not pay the uh, special prosecutors in his case anything more than they would pay to uh, indigent defense. So the, and since we have white shoot special prosecutors who are used to billing in the 1,000 to 2,000 range an hour, they aren't going to work for $40 an hour. Uh, so you know all of that, I think you, the combination of a house that was going on the offensive uh, and wanted to push back, and then a very weak attorney general who was a real liability for Texas Republicans led to where we are now, where the House felt that it could push this far. Although in doing so, the Speaker, Dade Phelan, has taken a risk and that he's put himself in the House out there. And if they fail and, they're in, and Paxton is not impeached, then uh, many of those members are going to face the wrath of Paxton and potentially Donald Trump as well in the March 2024 Republican primaries. So you raised Trump. We're going to get to that in a moment. But before that, you know, uh, and again, speaking of Trump, you can never not speak of Trump whenever you talk about these issues. But, you know, we're all very familiar with maybe the rules of uh, how a president is impeached, having seen it twice uh, in the last few years of the pre of the Trump presidency. Uh, there are some, however, unique rules to impeachment in Texas, one being that all 31 senators have to be present at trial. That's complicated, of course. By the fact that one of those senators is married to Ken Paxton. How's that all going to work out? Uh, that's unclear. So as you mentioned, Texas, the Texas Constitution and Texas statute don't say all that much about impeachment. One thing they do say, though, is that all 31 senators must be present. But they they give considerable latitude to the Texas Senate in crafting the rules for the impeachment trial that will take place in August. Um, now, that will, the, the senators will meet to discuss that, at least a small committee, starting on June 20th. And it'll be interesting to watch how they deal with the issue of potential recusals. One option is that they could go the route of saying we're going to run this trial just like a jury trial is run in Texas criminal court or civil court, in which case uh, Angela Paxton would be required to recuse herself. Uh, there's also another senator, Brian Hughes from Minola who was alleged to have been had Patrick request a fake phony 
uh, attorney general opinion from him that the attorney general could then issue that would benefit this investor, Nate Paul. So he's a potential witness. Uh, and so he could also face potential recusal. It's it's unclear really what the Senate wants to do. And, and I think the what how those rules are crafted will send a signal for which route the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, wants to go. If the lieutenant governor drafts a, a, a rules that effectively force Angela Paxton and, and or Brian Hughes to recuse themselves, then that is going to make it a little easier to impeach the attorney general. If, on the other hand, the lieutenant governor goes based on the limited statute that's there and says, it says that all 31 senators must be there, so I'm going. all 31 senators are going to be there, then that would aid Paxton in terms of avoiding impeachment. So, Professor, last question here on Legal Faceoff with our last minute. Paxton claims that these allegations are part of a politically motivated witch hunt being carried out by Democrats and moderate Republicans, which sounds similar to defenses to his indictment and multiple criminal probes voiced by former President Trump, who's come to Paxton's defense. How do you think this impeachment plays out in the context of Trump's reelection campaign? Well, I think yes. The Paxton Paxton has two legal strategies. One is to deny that any of this ever occurred, and that in making the case that this is all politically motivated and has no merit. The second is more of a technicality issue, where he, his claim is going to be that even if you believe this happened, which he's going to claim it did not, that it happened before his most recent reelection in the Republican primary in twenty in May of twenty twenty two, and then the general election in November of twenty twenty two, and therefore. Voters were aware of this, and that was the case with Republican voters, less so with general election voters. So uh, there's nothing to judge here. Uh, and that could be provide a technicality for those senators who don't want to discount all of these allegations, which are very credible, but at the same time don't want to impeach the attorney general. Uh, Trump, uh, where Trump plays a role in this, I think, is his ability to lobby many of those individual senators. Trump is still a force to be reckoned with in Texas. He had, he's the most popular Republican in the state. And in uh, the most recent poll we did of the 2024 Republican primary, he uh, best Ron DeSantis by more than 35 points. Again, that's Professor Mark Jones, political science fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute. Professor, thank you very much for the insight. Thank you. Continuing on the Legal Face-Off podcast, GOP lawmakers have passed new standards on banning some Texas school books. We have Daniel Novak, VP and Associate General Counsel of Penguin Random House. Dan, thank you very much for the time today. Thank you for having me. So, Dan, Texas lawmakers in both chambers have recently been in the news with legislation aimed at banning school library books that are deemed inappropriate for children because they include references to sexually explicit material. Books would need to be rated for sexually relevant versus sexually explicit content. There would be a prohibition for material that is considered harmful or sexually explicit. And there is a retroactive component to the legislation as well, among other key provisions. Tell us more about this proposed legislation. So this is Texas Bill HB 900, and it's a really unique bill in the sense that a lot of what we're seeing nationwide are attempts to limit what comes in the classroom. Here, there's certainly an element of that, but there's also an additional element of requiring publishers to self-designate 
which books they believe are sexually explicit or sexually relevant. Now, those words have no real meaning, but as far as the legislation is concerned, sexually explicit is essentially pornography. You can imagine that most booksellers are not attempting to sell pornography into uh, elementary schools. And then sexually relevant is this incredibly vague standard, which is essentially that the book sort of depicts sex in it. According to contemporary community standards, of course, it begs the question of whose contemporary community standards. So all this is designed to get publishers to designate their material and therefore take that responsibility away from localities and foist it upon publishers. And then in turn, once they have these lists, parents will be able to, well, schools will be forced to make sure that they get individual parent consent for any sexually relevant title. So it's really just a way to grab all these books away from children. Now, why is this such an important issue uh, to you and your capacity with Penguin Random House? And, you know, talk to us a little bit about the amicus brief that uh, that was filed. Sure. So Penguin Random House uh, recently filed an amicus brief in a case also in Texas uh, involving the Lano School District. And it, that was a, a book banning case. Essentially, uh, this district, Lano County, um, it directed three of its library branches to just uh, to pull a number of titles. The titles that were pulled are books that are, you know, across the board, uh, virtually across the board, award winning titles, um, uh, highly valued works of literary merit. They're not in any sense pornographic or anything like that. And in fact, what we're seeing is that many of the titles that are being pulled are not being pulled for concerns about uh, sex, but rather because there's depictions or discussion of racism and historic injustice. So, Dan, to that end, um, the Texas book ban discussion is against the backdrop of a larger current in Texas, including the restrictions on how educators teach historical events. Um, as you mentioned, racism as well as how they teach lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity. Where do you think all of this is headed? Well, we're really focused at Penguin Random House on trying to identify people in these communities that are under threat, teachers, librarians, parents, students that are just trying to access books that can expand their consciousness and expose them to new ideas, build compassion for people um, and form connections. Uh, so what's happening is that this is all being disrupted because there's a very small group of people. There's one study that suggests that 60% of known uh, book ban requests are originating from 11 individuals nationwide, just to put this in context. It's a very small group of people that are promulgating these, um, these ideas about which books young people should be able to read. And it amounts to an attempt to take, take the discussion onto, onto a terrain that they control. They don't like the discussions of race, racism. There's some squeamishness associated with uh, just open depiction of LGBT individuals. And forget sex, just the fact of them being, of a character in a book being gay is upsetting people. And rather than, uh, because they can't win the debate on, on the terms of what actually society wants, they're trying to just uh, basically uh, co-opt the mechanism of government to win, to, to sidestep the debate and, and force these decisions to be made on the rest of their community. So it's, it's, you don't want a book for your kid. That's what that's, that's, you know, that's a conversation, but this is no child should have this. So you're taking, you're usurping other parents ability to let their kids access material. And that's where we draw the line. Dan, um, wizard of Oz, 
Great Gatsby, Charlotte's Web, um, Catcher in the Rye, uh, uh, Harry Potter, right? Uh, these are not only great works of, of literature and great works of free expression, but they're also books that have been banned. Uh, and again, not just going back to the 50s and earlier, but in recent times, some of those titles are, are recent. Um, the fact that we're now in 2023 talking again about cases and legislators banning people from reading certain books. What does that say about where we are sort of, uh, you know, nationally and, and societally um, and sort of about the state of the First Amendment of which you're an expert, you've discussed that on our show before. I know that's a really broad question, but give us your insight on, on that on that question. I think that these free speech questions, that they kind of are resolved in fits and starts. And when it rains, it's really poor. So right now we're, we're dealing with a lot of them. And my personal observation is that because publishers are dramatically expanding the range of voices that we publish, not just the authors, but the, the stories within, that there's pushback. And whenever you open up uh, the, the, um, book publishing or or television, film, everywhere, we're seeing it, music, to more voices there's there's going to be a reaction and we're seeing it and what we've have observed i mean just there's just ample polling about this is that these attacks on free speech and representation are tremendously unpopular so the problem is that there is um a very committed but small group of people that are unbelievably well organized and determined to have their their voice you know uh, amplified and they have allies in some of these state houses, and it's unfortunate. We're seeing this in Texas, in Florida. There's a there's laws in Tennessee that are very troubling. There's also we're, I'm seeing laws in Missouri and Utah, and it's not it's not a purely a red state blue state phenomenon. There are districts across the country, in any number, you know, all across the country, truly, that are sometimes getting into this book banning fervor. Um, my hometown, uh, growing up at Basking Ridge, New Jersey recently, uh, made the Washington Post and it was somewhat embarrassing <laughs> to see that. And I would say that um, the law is great on this stuff. The First Amendment is really strong on paper, but it's being stress tested right now. And what we're going to have to see is whether or not a judiciary that has increasingly been sculpted by Donald Trump and his ideological allies are going to hold the line. And for the most part, they have so far, but there's, there's a wave of, of litigation that is ongoing and will continue that will uh, really tell, tell the story. Last question here, Dan, speaking of President, former President Trump, you know, uh, as recently as this week, he continued to attack the press, which is a you know key component of the First Amendment. Of course, the First Amendment protects um, the right to report news or circulate opinion without censorship from the government. Also, in a few seconds, a few minutes, we'll be covering uh, the Prince Harry lawsuit in uh, the UK against the press. So against the backdrop of those attacks on the First Amendment, sort of how do you think that ties into the overall theme that, you, that you're discussing? Well, you, you bring up a really instructive comparison here, which is between the United States and the United Kingdom. The, the press freedom there is, is almost unrecognizable to us here. We really have a true free speech uh, oriented country. And it's something that motivated me, you know, to go to law school and, and, and become a first amendment lawyer. Um, it is these, these things are fragile sometimes. And we don't, I don't think anyone wants to be live in the regime of law that exists in the UK where you really have to 
watch your back saying anything about a person that has any power. So I, I hope that, and I, and I expect that because Americans do prioritize free speech, it's, you know, the first amendment's number one in the program and in our hearts, uh, that a lot of what's going on right now is an education problem. What I mean by that is it's happening in education, but also people are not aware of it. People are not aware of the, the depths of what is getting banned and what reasons. And as we work to educate consumers, parents, teachers, et cetera, and, and frankly, politicians about it, people are waking up and they're going to get active. And I think just yesterday, I believe, or, or earlier this week, Illinois passed a law that bans book banning, essentially. New Jersey has some legislation. So we are seeing a response, but we're just in the very early days of it. And I expect that we, I mean, I keep saying expect, but really what I mean is I hope that actually the country will come out stronger for it. That's Dan Novak, VP and Associate General Counsel of Penguin Random House. Dan, thank you very much for the insight today. Thank you, as always. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. It's time to move on to the legal grab bag segment of the Legal Faceoff podcast. Let's get to our two guests. We start with Bill Himmelstein, founder, CEO, and managing broker of Tenant Advisory Group. Bill, thank you very much, very much for being here. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. We also welcome back on very short notice, Albert Solar, partner of Skorinci and Hollenbeck, founder of the B Street Entertainment Group as well. Albert, welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Rich, we're going to start off with the story of the mother of the six-year-old that shot his teacher and is now pleading guilty. Yeah, I mean, update on the story we've covered extensively. Everyone has heard of the uh, story in Virginia. This six-year-old brought a gun into class, shot a sixth-grade teacher. She still has a bullet uh, in her. She, by the way, has filed a $40 million lawsuit for negligence against the school district, alleging that they had some warning of this, had some knowledge, failed to uh, properly... Uh, act to remedy this situation. Uh, the uh, school board has answered that this is a workers' compensation claim only. Kind of an interesting, interesting theory. You got shot by a kid, and your only remedy is workers' comp. But maybe you know. Um, but anyway, uh, the news this week, uh, Tina, is that uh, in addition to some state charges which have already been filed against her for child endangerment and negligence, uh, she has now pled guilty, as Joe mentioned, to a couple of felony charges. One being the unlawful use of marijuana in possession of a handgun and then making a false statement about her drug use, which is interesting because 
you know, uh, as we know, marijuana is still a controlled substance, still illegal under federal law. And when you apply for a gun, you have to check off a box that says you're not using any illegal drugs. She said that she was not when she got the gun. Uh, she was, at least allegedly. And that's what they're going after her for. So, you know, adds a little uh, additional charges to it. Again, she's pled guilty. She doesn't have a criminal record. Obviously, the uh, more significant charge is the state charge. Um, you know, she might plead out there. But I guess the overall, uh, uh, you know, takeaway from this story might be there's a growing trend. As we see, unfortunately, these shootings continue across the country seemingly every day, Tina. There is a growing trend for prosecutors to not just go after the assailant, which in many times you cannot because they're dead uh, in these active shooter cases, go after their caregivers, their parents, their guardians for negligence, right? I mean, in this case, the woman said that she thought the gun was locked up in the closet. Uh, it, it obviously wasn't adequately locked up. So the idea is let's go after uh, people who are allowing these shootings to happen. Um, perhaps as a punishment, but also perhaps as a message to other parents, right? We've seen that on a couple of occasions. So I think, you know, uh, it's it's good that they're charging her federally in addition to the state charges. I think that sends the right message. I agree with you, Rich, that I think that, you know, there's a large consensus of people who, who are of the opinion that she needs to I guess, be held accountable for lack of a better way of putting it with respect to this situation. Um, we've seen, you know, in a situation that hits close to home for many of us here in Chicago, the case of the Highland Park shootings where the father of the shooter is in a similar situation with respect to charges being brought against him. I think what we need to really do, though, is take a step back and think about whether these types of charges, while they may be very reactive to situations that have already unfortunately happened, whether they really get to the crux of trying to address the going forward here and trying to prevent these types of horrific um, things from happening in the future. I'm not really sure that these sorts of charges um, or potential causes of action really get to the heart of trying to and trying to as successfully as we can address these types of things and try to prevent them from happening in the first place. Yeah, I, mean, I think you're right. And, and Bill, you know, it's a, it's a great point that charging her for getting a gun when she was also using marijuana around that time. I mean, that doesn't seem to send a message to parents that you should not have guns accessible to kids, right? It's a questionable nexus there. It's clearly the feds just trying to add, you know, some additional bite onto the charges. But what are your thoughts on whether this particular charge is the right one? Look, I, clearly America has a, a, a huge problem on our hands with gun control, right? And Congress um, and our elected officials have, have not taken a stance. They've not done anything to really try and prevent these. So my thought process is, look, if there's a way that we can hold people accountable for them, whether I think that it's appropriate or not, I'm just happy to see something being done personally. And yeah, were there things that she could have done to prevent this? hundred percent. Did she lie on her application? It looks like she might have. And so just to be able to take any sort of measures to prevent future incidents like this from happening, I'm in favor of, period. 
Albert, again, I mentioned that uh, Taylor, the uh, defendant here, had no previous medical record. She also, through her lawyers at her last court appearance, has said that she suffered from postpartum depression after a succession of miscarriages, including an ectopic, ectopic pregnancy, excuse me. Uh, also, the six-year-old allegedly suffered from an acute disability, was under uh, a plan where either his mother or his father would attend school with him. And this day of the shooting was the first day that that didn't happen. Does any of that matter? I mean, are we just sort of, are these just excuses for what's a pretty egregious uh, lack of, uh, of supervision of your six-year-old? Look, I think there's no question that in the real world, it's important to also look at what the circumstances are, right? What's the household like? What battles and fights are they having with this kid? What surprises me is that he did have a disability, right? The parents should have been on heightened alert. They should have realized that there's a potential problem. And what this reminds me of is a lot of those strict liability type of laws, right? A lot of times, for example, three strikes laws, where I steal a loaf of bread three times, I get a mandatory jail sentence. A lot of folks want to say, well, what about that person? What hardships were they going through? They needed money. They couldn't feed their family. But the law has to draw the line somewhere. A minor is incapable of that judgment. That's why they're minors. That's why they can't contract, right? They're not capable. They don't have that kind of competence to do it yet. So I think a parent putting all these excuses out there to me is irrelevant. The bottom line is that you're the caretaker, you're the adult, you're the legal representative, and you're the legal uh, parent of the minor. You're responsible. Otherwise, we have a slippery slope. We're going to look at every single situation. No, the bottom line is you're responsible. You knew he had a condition. Whatever your hardships are actually add to it. Think about it. If she's saying that she has issues, not only does she have issues, now the kid has issues as well, and you have a gun. I think it's right. You have to set an example, and there has to be a line drawn. Tina, let's go across the pond where Prince Harry becomes the first senior British royal to provide evidence in over 130 years. Yeah, Joe. So over the years here on Alifa, we've talked many about the many um, issues that Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle, have had with the tabloids. And then in the latest of these battles, Prince Harry has filed a lawsuit against Britain's Mirror Group newspapers and appeared in court yesterday and today to testify in a case where he's accusing the publisher of unlawful information gathering. Specifically, he claims that these tabloids hacked into his voicemail to obtain confidential information to use in writing articles. He's one of a number of claimants that are alleging that over 200 newspaper articles published between 1991 and 2011, 33 of which refer to Prince Harry himself, have used inappropriate means to gather information for their articles, including voicemail hacking. They also claim that senior executives, including Pierce Morgan, who edited the Daily Mirror newspaper from 1995 to 2004, knew of the illegal activities. Prince Harry claims that MGN's journalists and other senior executives knew that what they were doing was unlawful and that they were actually taking um, advantage of him and taking a toll on his mental health particularly when he was an impressionable young adult and against the backdrop of his mother's untimely death in 1997 after being chased by French paparazzi. Interestingly, MGN previously admitted that phone hacking has taken place at its tabloids, but its lawyer denies that many of these articles involving Prince Harry involved unlawfully gathered information. 
um, and have not admitted that there was any voicemail hacking at, at all. As you mentioned, Joe, Harry's actually the first senior member of Britain's royal family to appear in a court in over 100 years giving testimony and facing cross-examination. Interestingly, the last of these cases involved a case of um, Bacharach gone wrong. So, Rich, I mean, we've seen we were talking earlier in the show about First Amendment and the interesting intersection and analysis of the U.S. laws versus laws like in the U.K., for example. Um, Harry's won some of these cases in the past. So it's going to be interesting to see how this one unfolds. Yeah, I mean, by all accounts from yesterday and and Harry's on the stand. Well, it's later in the evening. Uh, in in the UK. I, by the way, I look up as if I've got like a 1957 CBS newsroom style <laughs> world clocks on my wall. Um, uh, yeah, it's later in the evening. Harry's done testifying for the day, but by all accounts, he got destroyed by the uh, by the barrister, as uh, as they're called, uh, for the uh, Mirror Corporation. And you know, when you say tabloids on this side of the pond, you think you know Inquirer or, or I mean, tabloids in in London are a major thing, right? I mean, you walk by a newsstand, there's like a dozen. Tabloids. So they're really major parts of the of the uh, of the free speech and, and and journalism there in the UK. But yeah, by all accounts, he got destroyed. He had to be told to speak up, um, you know, and I don't know as a litigator myself, like I'd be licking my chops if I was able to cross examine Harry, because where's the evidence? I mean, how, how are you going to prove that? No proof. Yeah, how are you going to prove that this that this phone was hacked? These are stories that go back 20, 25 years. Right. And, you know, if you know anything about journalism and the royal family in the UK, it's all leaks. Everyone's leaking all the time. The whole royal family is built on this culture of leaking, right? I mean, Megan alleged that, you know, I mean, that was a story from, from Oprah, but there's dozens of leaks every week. So I don't know how he's going to meet his burden as the plaintiff in proving that his cell phone was hacked. And again, he also has to overcome the perception, Albert, that it's just more whining from Harry, right? Like, Oh, boo-hoo, my life is so bad. I have to live in castles and I have to grow up with every possible, you know, accommodation. Like, people don't care. Most people don't like Harry, even in the UK. And they just want him to go away and stop whining, I think. So there's a lot of obstacles. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, you know, especially here in the U.S., right, we have a very different view of that entire system. I think with the difficulties going on in the world, how much how many issues are actually out there that are really, really important. I think a lot of U.S. folks at least may not understand, you know, the royal family and the fact that there's a king and he has a crown and all this. But having said that, you know, look, a lot of celebrities leak their own news, right? It's about press. It's about being out there. I'm not suggesting they did that. But the reality is that the news media has always been used as a conduit for information to stay relevant. Look at today, look at the social media kind of uh, culture that we have. Everyone leaks their own stuff, right? And um, here, for example, the bottom line is it's going to be extremely difficult to prove that there was that kind of hacking. If they do it, absolutely improper, of course. But the reality is that their life as public figures is out there. Right here in the U.S., for example, you have to show that that information was already out there. It's not a breach of confidentiality. Someone else had it before it came in your possession. Everyone knows everything about the royals. I mean, I don't know what's a secret anymore. So they're going to have a really tough time. And also, you know, the articles I read mentioned that he wasn't remembering specific facts as well. And if you're going to go into a litigation and you're going to be cross-examined, you better be sure that you understand every single piece of minutia about that case. Because the one issue that you think they're not going to get you on is exactly what they're going to examine you on. 
So I don't think he was prepared either. And what's interesting, and Bill, we'll get to you in a second. Well, what's interesting also, speaking about lying on a federal application, there's also, ironically, right now, a lawsuit by that very conservative Heritage Foundation alleging that Harry lied in his visa application because in his book, Spare, where he again whines about how difficult his life was, he admits to drug use, various drug uses, and the allegation in this complaint is that he lied about that when he applied for a visa. But, but Bill, in any litigation, there's two components, right? As a plaintiff, you got to prove liability and damages. Even assuming he gets over the hurdle, which we all agree is very difficult in proving liability, what are his damages, right? He's alleging that he, he had relationships suffer in school and he's emotionally distraught. I mean, come on. You're Harry. You've got a great life. Even though you quit the Royals, how how can you prove damages in this case? Well, I find it very hard to uh, drum up sympathy for a member of the royal family. It's just difficult for this privileged child uh, who's grown up with every advantage. It's very difficult to, you know, pour your heart out for this for this kid. I mean, I, I, if if you want to maintain a secluded lifestyle, especially if you have those means, I imagine there's a, a lot better ways to do it. But uh, to me, Rich, the issue here. And it's really playing out in the United States right now is fact and truth versus fiction and, and, and lies and making things up. I mean, in the olden days, they used to tell us the news, the facts, and we would determine how we felt about it. Now they tell us how we should feel about something and we need to determine whether it's true or not. And so I think that's the bigger issue here is, is obviously you know, as an attorney, you know, people can throw out frivolous lawsuits anytime they want. They can allege anything and, and, and put a lawsuit out there. But I think the bigger issue, the bigger component here is <clears throat> what are people putting out that's true and what are people putting out that's not true? And what are the ways that we as the consumer of that information can help determine whether it's true or not? I, I think that's really what's you know, if you talk about social media, that's what's dividing our country so viciously is that there's a lot of falsehoods on both sides. I'm not pointing to one side of the aisle. I'm saying on both sides tend to make things up and pass it off as fact and then argue with the other side. And it's just, it's not helping. It's not really doing anybody any favors. But as it relates to Harry, yeah, man, um, I don't feel sorry for him. Um you know, I hope he can get some good therapy and get him get his head back in a comfortable place. God knows he's got the resources to get some good therapy. But, you know, if you looked at the testimony and, and the, the prosecuting attorney kept saying, prove it. And he's like, oh, well, you, you guys, you know, Harry's response was, well, you're the, you know, the only the reporter knows. Well, that's not going to prove a case. That's not going to win you in any cases. So I don't see him as coming out on top of this one, unless they can come up with hard facts about how they illegally obtain this information. Tina, let's move on to the rise and incredibly quick fall of a law firm after its leaders sent inappropriate emails. Yeah, Joe. So last month, the law firm Louis Bourgeois hit the headlines when two of its top partners announced they were starting their own boutique practice and taking as many as 140 of their colleagues with them. They didn't go quietly either. They actually launched a press campaign that involved a lot of mudslinging against their own firm and portrayed it as a profit-focused legal mill um, that ground people down. 
Well, a few days ago, this exodus was back in the news when Louis Brisbois struck back at these folks by releasing a bunch of emails spanning 15 years in which the two main partners leading the exodus, John Barber and Jeff Rannon, were shown to have used some pretty horrific language against a whole host of people, including women, African-Americans, LGBTQ+, and and used offensive stereotypes against them and many others. And the blowback has been so significant, in fact, that both Barbara and Rannon have already resigned from the firm because their name's on the door, and they issued an apology in a joint statement that announced their resignations. This new firm is having a lot of struggles at this point. I think there was an announcement this morning about the name change, which is very understandable when the two name partners have left. Um, and there are a lot of folks apparently who are have either asked for or contemplating asking their old firm for their old jobs back. What's particularly disturbing about this case is that these two partners were not junior partners or junior employees. They were actually influential veterans and practice leaders in their old firm. Um, They actually both helped run Louis Brisbois' labor and employment practice. Um, And it was actually during the run of coverage about their departure that the firm received an anonymous complaint making the recommendation that the firm review their old emails. Rich, I mean, there are so many things wrong with this story. I mean, there's so many different potential um, avenues from this point forward. Um, They actually had consulted ethics experts before going public with these emails. And one of the options was to release these emails Um, And also, I think uh, it's at least being contemplated um, potentially filing a complaint with the state bar of California. Um, I don't think this story is nearly over rich. I mean, I don't think that uh, this type of a show is appropriate to read through some of what these emails said. I mean, it was really pretty outrageous, but I don't think this is the end of the story here. Yeah, I mean, our listeners of yours could obviously, you know, find the actual emails uh, in a very quick search, so we don't want to dignify them on this show. They're pretty offensive, unquestionably. I guess one 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 question I had that's interesting is, you know, Louis Brisbois is Louis Brisbois is possibly opening them themselves up to some liability here because these law these emails date back to when these individuals were employed by the law firm, and you know they are almost per se. Uh, harassment and sexual harassment um, in the way they refer to minorities, in the way they refer to females. And, you know, I guess you got to give the firm credit in releasing them because if I'm a potential plaintiff who is alleging that perhaps my career path wasn't advanced the way it should be because of management of this firm, well, guess what's exhibit number one? These emails. And I'm not just going after these, you know, former attorneys, and went after the big fish, the law firm. So, listen, I'm sure the firm went through this analysis before they decided to release the tapes, but to me, that's a really significant part of all of this. So I don't know what your thoughts are. Albert, um, Yeah, not a good luck, obviously, for the legal profession generally, but these individuals all the way around. Well, you know what's interesting? Look, I mean, aside from the obvious lack of integrity and professionalism that they showed, I mean, it's outrageous. We all know that. What's more surprising is that an attorney 
would not understand that at a firm, he should write emails assuming that the whole world is watching with professionalism. Here at my firm, for example, I know very well, one, I would never write that, period. I'm a professional. But second, I understand that what I'm writing should be professional. Why? Because it's on record. People can read them. You don't have that right to privacy here at any firm or any job. Um, and so, it, one, have integrity. Two, if you're going to say nonsense like that, I wouldn't reveal it. And lastly is, these firms and businesses always want to have this go away quietly. I'm surprised that they actually made a big deal out of this in public. Normally, this goes away really quick like this and no one ever hears about it. But in this case, both sides seem to be making mistakes because they're exposing themselves. Yeah, that's my, again, that's my feeling too. Like, Bill, don't you think, I mean, again, like you got to give, I guess, the firm some credit, although I guess you question their motives also because they did it at Satina's point, perhaps in response to, you know, the first move by the individuals, maybe as payback. But again, like if I'm someone that's the subject of some of these rants, and even if I'm not, even if I'm just a layperson, I think, well, this was all under your watch for years and years. Like, why, why did you allow this to happen dating back to 2012? There's a certain phrase that keeps running through my head with this story, and it's those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Um, I think that attorneys of all people should know that everything that's ever written is cast in stone since, since the age of the internet. And, you know, uh, it's something that I, I practice religiously, Albert, you, you spoke about this. It's just be cognizant of what you're putting down in paper, uh, or in emails, you know, whatever you're writing, that's permanent. And so be a professional. It's just kind of, it's disappointing. It's really just sad to see these two sides going after each other over stuff that A, was easily preventable. B, common sense uh, would dictate that you don't write things like that. Uh, and, and, and C, you know, they're just, uh, it's like a prisoner's dilemma where they're both choosing the path that's going to be the worst outcome for everyone involved. It's just, it's just not a smart thing. It's sad to see and too bad for them, right? Too bad for them. What's particularly troubling is that they're both labor and employment lawyers. And I actually think that there were some references in the press that they actually wrote and orchestrated some of these emails knowing that they were likely going to be read, which is, I mean, that just goes to show who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with labor and employment lawyers who actually made jokes in their emails about them being read or likely to be read by others at the firm. Such poor, poor, poor judgment. For everything. I mean, it really is outrageous, not only for anybody to say those things and write them, a labor and employment attorney. So they even have more knowledge than everybody else about how difficult it is and how careful you have to be with your employees and your staff. It's outrageous. I'm, I'm shocked at it. It's, it's nuts. Bouncing off of Bill's mention of those in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, to quote comedian Dimitri Martin, how about nobody throws stones? <laughs> How about just, just no uh, In other news, Rich, a Hawaiian man is pleading guilty after the death of a baby bison. Yeah, I mean, you know, the bison have been in the news a lot lately, right? It seems like every couple of months you see video of some idiot uh, taunting bison, uh, taking selfies within inches of this, you know, two or three thousand pound animal that can gourd you and kill you. But yet people keep doing it. Uh, and then, you know, that also encourages bison and other wildlife to come closer to people and bad things happen. Right. 
In this case, I don't think this guy's intent was as bad as maybe some of the other videos that have gone rival, uh, uh, viral. Um, this was a guy who noticed that a calf, a newborn bison, as you mentioned, Joe, had been separated from its mother. It was crossing the Lamar River at Yellowstone. And he he says he felt bad. Uh, he didn't want to see the, the baby die. And he went down to the river, pushed it up toward the roadway. Well, what happened then was uh, they had to ultimately euthanize the bison because when you get close to a bison, your scent comes on the animal and you get rejected by the herd, which is what happened in this case. And uh, without being part of the herd, the bison couldn't survive. The um, uh, park rangers, the park service decided to euthanize the bison. When this guy heard of this about this on the news, he turned himself in. He was charged with uh, with uh, with a felony. Um, so again, you know, uh, I actually took a deep dive into the story because it was really interesting. I guess there's some blowback against the park service whenever they do something like this and euthanize the animal. They they came out and said, "Listen, um, not to quote from the Lion King, but there's a circle of life, right? And there's a reason why bison or other animals reject their young, and that's necessary, right? And that rejected baby becomes food for the rest of the ecosystem. So what this guy did, you know, disrupted the ecosystem, shouldn't be done. You know, I commend him for sort of turning himself in and pleading guilty. Um, but, you know, sometimes you got to let the, uh, the, 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 the disabled baby, Tina, it's an animal, do its thing and be eaten by a gazelle or something or a zebra. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, you know, it's a sad story because it's, it's you know, just always like these sorts of stories make me think back to like Bambi when I saw Bambi as a kid and just got really sad when, you know, the mom got killed and all of that. So, you know, I agree that, you know, you sort of have to leave um, the wildlife alone. And I think these laws and these rules are in place so that people don't unduly take advantage of Wildlife. I mean, just to bring it closer to home, David and I hosted a robin's nest for the last month. A robin decided to make a nest right outside our front door and had a few babies and a couple of them didn't make it. And David and I would have loved to have saved the ones that were in peril, but ultimately you have to let nature take its course. And there's actually laws in Illinois that prohibit you from disturbing any types of nests, including birds' nests and so forth. So I'm all for having these rules in place. If nothing else, it just hammers home that you have to let nature take its course. Speaking of nature, letting nature take its course, Albert, you know, this guy was charged with a $500 fine, some community service, an assessment, and a processing fee. But maybe the better punishment should have been for this individual the punishment that we've seen in many videos, like I mentioned, you know, the bison should have gored the kid, the guy, and that would have been the lesson. And, you know, that is the actual circle of life. If you mess with an animal, you, uh, you know, yeah. what's the old saying? If you uh, mess with a bull, you get the horn. That should have been the case here, perhaps. Yeah, you know what? Here's the thing. Unless this guy was a bison expert, I don't think he should have been charged with anything. I mean, think about it. People love animals, right? Imagine how many videos do you see of the of, of the whale or the shark that was beached, and then you see a hundred people go and they put them back, and everyone celebrates how great it is. This person happened to have an animal that had a particular way of behaving, and you're not supposed to do that in that case. But I actually think the onus also is on Yellowstone yeah. Parks to let people know to not do that. I, I always have a problem with, for example, schools and kids and, you know, they don't teach enough consequences of what may happen. For example, 
I think that kids, and this is, you know, very applicable to this issue too. Kids should be taught that, listen, you drink and drive, here's what can happen. You're going to jail. You're going to kill somebody, manslaughter. They don't know that. So then the kids aren't aware of the consequences and it might help them if they knew it here. If I go to Yellowstone and I see a big time that says, just in case bison, don't touch them. You disturb the ecosystem and uh, you know, uh, misdemeanor or whatever. That's different. Now I'm noticed. But if I'm an animal lover and I go see a stranded bison, then, then I get fined. I don't know. Unless he was an expert and he had notice, he probably should have let this one I'll, I'll push back on that two ways. Number one, there are signs everywhere. It says, you know, keeps 25 feet away from all wildlife. Um, and, you know, when you are when you go into any national park, they give you like a pamphlet with all the rules. So I think there's ample signage. Number two, also, you can't legislate common sense, right? This is a wild animal. It's like I saw a video the other day of a guy who got his arm literally ripped clean off his body by an alligator. You know why? He was in Florida, swamp nearby. He left the bar and he had to go to the bathroom because the bathroom line was too long. He took up he, he, in the dark, 2 a.m. He uh, urinated on the swamp. And what a shock. An alligator came out and ripped his arm off. I mean, should you have a sign that says, hey, do not pee in a swamp in the middle of the night in Florida? Or should you just, you know, attribute some of that to basic common sense? So I hear what you're saying, you know, but I, I think there's like ample signage on that stuff. You know, I'm thinking of the phrase. Okay. <laughs> what did you say, Albert? I think you're overestimating the intellect of some <laughs> folks. <clears throat> That's to my point. I'm thinking uh, of the phrase natural selection. There you, you know, go. you do something stupid. Uh, you're going to have consequences. Those people are going to be weeded out. Um, I love that this guy was trying to do something great. I appreciate his intent. Uh, but if you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what you're talking about, stay out of it. You know, follow the signs. If you can read, then you would know, don't touch the animals. Um, and maybe you report it. If anything, let them know, hey, there's a stranded baby bison. But natural selection tends to occur. And people like that, uh, just like the woman who let her son get a hold of her gun, uh, it's natural selection. These things tend to work themselves out as the people who have no idea what they're doing fall victim to, to something one way or the other. Yeah, Rich, I'm with Albert. How many stories have we talked about people suing after their McDonald's coffee was too hot? Like they, they you expect them to read that you can't touch the animals, but you don't expect them to read too hot on the coffee cup. And it's, I guess it's a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, Tina, ChatGPT continues to freak out the world. Yeah, Joe. So in the latest of people's brilliance, um, last week, the New York Times published an article called Here's What Happens When Your Lawyer Uses ChatGPT. And it was used um, as an example of why some folks are pretty critical of using ChatGPT, particularly um, among lawyers, and discussed a recent case in the Southern District of New York in which a Doug a judge issued a show to, a show cause order where the defense lawyers actually used chat GPT to draft a motion to dismiss. And in that motion, they cited a number of cases. Um, and all of this was generated using chat GPT. The case involved a number of complex issues, including statutes of limitations that were competing, um, the bankruptcy code and international treaties and chat GPT was used um, to issue it, you know, like to generate a discussion, generate a list of cases and so forth. As it turns out, some of these cases were actually made up 
Um, they didn't exist. Citations were wrong, or maybe even were citations to cases that didn't exist. And they were yet all included in the motion and really upset the judge. Um, apparently, the lawyer who was using ChatGPT to draft this, using using it, um, had not been keeping up with current events about what ChatGPT should and should not be used for. Now, I remember back when I first was in law school and, you know, the discussion was about using online research versus hitting the books and actually using report physical reporters. There was a lot of discussion about the ethics of doing online research. And as our profession continues to evolve, technology evolves, um, you know, that always seems to be the underlying message to lawyers, especially because we have rules of ethics um, and are supposed to have plain old common sense. Don't turn over your practice and your motions and your briefs to technology to draft. They're a tool. They're not supposed to be used to generate the actual briefs themselves. Um, and so, Rich, I mean, this is, again, like some of the other stories that we covered in the grab bag. This is like just common sense stuff. I don't know what's worse. Like, I don't know if this... I you know, almost every grab bag we cover an example of lawyering gotten bad. We got two really egregious examples today. I don't know if this is worse than the emails, frankly. This might be worse, you know. Make it up, you make it up cases that don't exist, quotes that don't exist, relying on chat GPT. I mean, stop. All you gotta say to this is enough. Stop. It's ridiculous. I don't know. Albert, uh, we'd all like to have an assistant that would help us with this stuff, but sometimes you gotta just do the work, right? Listen, in entertainment, everything AI right now is just going nuts. I mean, I represent a lot of companies and labels and all this, and everyone's worried about it. The bottom line is conduct was absolutely egregious. I can't believe it. The guy wasn't lawyering. He didn't do anything. The idea that you'd go before a court as an officer of the court, and you didn't even read it, and you had no idea the citations were off, and that cases didn't exist, outrageous. It's malpractice. It's bad, bad, bad. Rich, on to our next story. Quite the comedy show experience for this one lawyer. Wow. Again, you can't make this stuff up. This is the third story, maybe a record, Tina, for our grab bag of just dumb lawyer shit. I'll just say that. That should be the title of today's show, Dumb Lawyer Shit. So, yeah, I mean, this guy sits in the front row of a comedy show. He's there with his assistant, speaking of, like, you know, labor and employment. He's there with his assistant, who he admits to having an affair with. He doesn't want it known on social media. Um, hey, guess what? <laughs> it is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing, you know, just very funny, of course, that this person decided to sit in the front row. I go to a lot of comedy shows and I know if I'm sitting anywhere near the close, I'm in the I'm in the bullseye, you know, and I certainly wouldn't admit to having uh, my my assistant who I'm having an affair with with me. So. I agree. I mean, put aside for the moment what we, you know, just know is like having an affair just wrong, right? So putting that aside for a moment, if you're going to decide to do it, there's actually a couple of things here. First of all, stay away from the front. Don't go to a comedy show. Don't go to a comedy show with the person you're having an affair with. Don't sit in the front. Or if you're going to do all those things, get your story straight before you actually do that, because it's pretty likely that you're going to get called on and abused by whoever the comedian is on the stage. Yeah. I mean, have you heard of lying? I don't know. Maybe that's an option, Bill. Again, comes back to natural selection. You do stupid stuff. 
They're going to have consequences. I mean, just it should be a simple thing. Don't be an idiot, right? Just don't be an idiot. It's not, it shouldn't be that tough, especially if you're an attorney. Presumably, you graduated, you graduated law school, you passed the bar. Don't act like an idiot. No, at the very least, they should have both agreed to wear COVID masks. <laughs> that would have helped, right? If they brought back privacy for masks. <laughs> You can't make up, you know, employment lawyers writing those kind of emails and a divorce lawyer doing this. It's just like, it's, it's the greatest. The Thank God for our podcast that we have that kind of content. People continuing to do stuff. Thank, thank you for the good lawyers like all of you that we have here today. I feel a lot more safe. Well, Bill's, uh, almost, a, Bill's almost a lawyer uh, after today, but... That's why I don't go to comedy shows. I never like them. <laughs> All right, Rich, we wrap things up. A very Taylor weekend and legal face-off is no different. So we now go to our honorary Swifty, Rich Lenkoff. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows that I'm a huge Swifty. I was at the show on Saturday in Chicago here at Soldier Field. Me and my daughter and, I don't know, 85,000 other screaming young ladies. Uh, there was a group of, you know, the, the dads uh, that were really... You were one of either two dads, Stephen. You were just dressed like a normal dad, or you were making a ridiculous arse out of yourself like I did and sort of dressing as the Swifties do. But, yeah, there's a lawsuit. I mean, predictably, we've covered a lot of these, but I mean, predictably, there's a lawsuit against Ticketmaster alleging that uh, Ticketmaster and its parent company, Live Nation, are engaged in fraud, misrepresentation, antitrust violations over this whole uh, mess that was the ticket sales. Uh, you know, very famously, a couple months ago when this tour went on sale, uh, it was a, you know, literally broke the internet, right? I mean, it shut down the entire system and people couldn't get tickets and people were just all sorts of glitches that made people incredibly frustrated, including my daughter. Um, so now there's a lawsuit uh, across the whole country, 13 states, 26 plaintiffs alleging that uh, in LA Superior Court, by the way, Albert's. Uh, neck of the woods, alleging uh, all these things. And that uh, in this case, unlike the Prince Harry case, Tina, I could tell you as a father that there are actual damages, that the uh, damages in this case, the one time you might see, you know, damages of post-traumatic stress and emotional distress. When you see these girls cry, you see girls having breakdowns and they're actually in the show. Imagine the girls who did get into the show. So I don't know. I mean, I represent a lot of these kind of companies, so I don't think these lawsuits are meritorious. But um, yeah, this one's currently happening. And the next show is in Detroit this weekend. Well, Rich, I mean, I definitely agree that I'm a little bit skeptical of these types of lawsuits. But that being said, you know, there's a there are a number of issues that are sort of cascading here, including what's happened to the ticket prices, the lack of, of accessibility to the ticket prices, which I think is going to draw greater scrutiny. I mean, I, I mean, the types of prices that are on these tickets is, is just astronomical. I mean, they make the prices for tickets for Springsteen, for example, look like, you know, pennies compared, you know, on a comparative basis. So um, I, I agree with you. Generally, I'm skeptical, but there's other issues at play here. Albert, uh, this is your wheelhouse. What are your thoughts? Um, there's so many things going on. First, yeah, it's nice for fans to be able to get tickets. I understand that. Taylor Swift's a huge artist. She's a great act, very talented. On the other hand, this society is based on capitalism. Here's what I don't understand. 
if the tickets are 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, the market dictates the price. So if I can sell it for 5,000 and there's a line out the door, why would I sell it for 150? It doesn't make any sense. And the other thing is, there are many situations where you have so many users that computer systems get overwhelmed. It does happen. And third, on the antitrust, you got to remember, monopolies are not illegal per se. It's not illegal to be a leader in an industry. It's illegal for you to use that power to block others from entry, but it's not illegal per se to be, in a sense, the best at what you do, right? To have monopoly power because you're the biggest, you just can't exclude others, right? So here, I think there's much to do about nothing. Listen, people love Ferraris, right? They're $275,000. Some people can buy them. Other people can't. I hate saying that. It sounds rude. But the reality is, this is capitalism. This is the market dictating the price. If they can sell it for higher, they're out to make money. The artists are great, but they're out to make money. If the artist wants to limit the price, that's beautiful too. If they want to sell with somebody else and sell their tickets for $50, I love that too. I respect it. Uh, where I totally, I totally agree, and you know, I, I, I'm a big Springsteen fan, and this same debate is going on uh, with his tour. It's making a lot of money, and you know, I tell people all the time, and I've seen Springsteen a lot. Like, by the way, it, it's a for-profit endeavor, right? I mean, Springsteen is not just making the money himself, although he's doing well. He's got a whole crew, he's got a staff, he's got musicians, right? Like, it's a product, just like anything else. And if you don't want to buy the product, don't buy it, but don't. Tell someone who has a unique, one of the most unique products in the history of the world to sell that he should give it away for a lesser price out of some, you know, knowledge because it because it's art. You know, art has a price and art's valuable. So I agree with you. Bill, we'll end off with you. We got only a couple minutes, but we'll, we'll let you start off with our round the table segment. Tell us your favorite Taylor Swift song. Favorite Taylor Swift song? You know. I think she's a talented artist and I applaud her uh, for writing her own music. Uh, She puts on a great show and go get it girl. Like make as much money as you can. I'm a capitalist as well. So I, I applaud her. Um, I wish her well. I really, I don't have a favorite song. I'm I'm happy for her. I I root her. I root her on. All right. Uh, Joe, we know you got to have a favorite Taylor song. Blank space. I'll write your name. Uh, Albert, favorite Taylor Swift song? I like the one that's the most recent one that was out, and I can't believe the name escapes. You know, I'm a little embarrassed about it. The one that's uh, on the radio now. Lavender uh, Haze? No, no. Right or before. Anti-Hero. Anti-Hero. I, like I, do. I like it a lot. But it did remind me a lot of a song by the artist named Lord. I know that they sampled some of it. But when I first heard that song, I thought of the Lord song, which obviously is not as popular. But that's a great song. Taylor Swift is a really talented songwriter. Perhaps, another, perhaps Albert's uh, considering a, another lawsuit <laughs> against Taylor. She's defended many for uh, uh, infringement. But Tina, favorite uh, Taylor song? Um, I cannot say I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan, but there are a few songs that I like that are catchy. I love Shake It Off. Always have. Mm. A good one. That's a good one. <laughs> my, Joe, my favorite was... Uh, Always is blank space, actually. But there's a new song that I heard. One of the reasons I like you on the shows is, you know, you hear stuff and it stays with you. I've been playing this song called The Man over and over again. Incredible song. Great message. And we'll end off by I need some help. I'm going I'm to take a vote because I'm going with my daughter to Minneapolis in a couple of weeks. Take her to see Taylor Swift there. And of course, I have one of the weird outfits because you got to wear an outfit to these shows. You'll see sequins and sparkles and all that. So here's the two options for my headwear. All right, ready? 
either this one. Yes. That one, or before you say yes to that, this one is compelling. You have a matching jumpsuit with that hat? I do. Right, right. I have the holster. Here's the second up. Oh, I'd do, I'd do the pink sequins. Love it. Gotta go I pink think- with a tight pink leotard. I think you got it. <laughs> or A. Hey, why not bring both? Just just bring both. All right. There you go. You can't lose. You can't lose. Yeah, the pink, yeah, the pink one's very Freddie Mercury. For some reason, I think of Freddie Mercury when I look at that pink one. All right. By the way, real quick, Rich, I have two tickets, 5,000 each if you want them. Okay. <laughs> wow, what a steal. Thank you. Wouldn't be a legal face-off episode without a wardrobe change from our own Rich Lenkoff. Big thanks to Albert and Bill for joining us on this legal grab bag. Big thanks to our earlier guests, Daniel, Professor Mark Jones, and Timideo Aganga-Williams. Another big thanks to our producers, Lisa Stiegel and Ben Anderson. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast. Do us a favor and rate five stars. Five stars alone for Rich's hat would probably do the trick. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.